0: I'm turning today to the first letter of Peter, chapter 2 and verse 11. 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 11. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. And our subject this morning is attacks on the soul. Well, these are remarkable words. And the Apostle Peter introduces them. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. It's elaborate and it's of great interest. Why would he introduce this exhortation in such a way? Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Well, these are words that can only be understood and received by converted people. These are words that would mean nothing to us without conversion to Christ, without the illumination of the Holy Spirit, regeneration of the soul, drawing us to Christ, opening our eyes, causing us to fall at his feet and plead for forgiveness and mercy and new life without the experience of the new birth, these words would be meaningless. At best, they'd be a kind of figure of speech. Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Only a believer... Only one who knows Christ can feel the depth and the seriousness of these words. And indeed, they're a measure of our spiritual aliveness, if you like. Because if these words are only partly challenge us or slightly challenge us, then we're almost in a backslidden state. We're a long way from where we should be. So the Apostle Peter begins, Dearly beloved, these are words only for the redeemed. And he addresses those who he knows are believers in the Lord. They're words also that must come from a friend Dearly beloved, I beseech you. The beseech word there translates the Greek to call near. You could put it like this. I call you to my side to give you personal deep counsel. Something for you. This is something between us. This is something very serious. When we talk privately and personally I can mention things to you which I wouldn't mention if others were present it's that kind of call near sometimes for comfort sometimes for challenge sometimes for reproof translated here beseech but it's the call near term dearly beloved I beseech you counsel you as one who knows you, I know about you, I understand you. How much did the Apostle Peter understand about the recipients of this letter? Well, he tells us in chapter 1 a great deal. Verse 3 of chapter 1, Blessed be God and the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again. He's speaking to those who have been born again. And then in verse 5 of chapter 1, who are kept by the power of God through faith. Kept through faith. He knows they have faith, earnest, sincere faith in the Lord. They have been given it and they have it. Verse 6. He speaks of their being in heaviness through manifold temptations, that is trials. They're people who've already suffered for the faith. Perhaps you have. You've suffered a degree of rejection and uh, you've had to forfeit certain things because of your faith. And you've proved that you love the Lord in that he's really worked in your heart. And then he speaks of their tenacity, chapter 1, verse 7, that the trial, the testing to refine your faith, being much more precious than of gold, that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, may be found unto praise and honour and glory. They are a tested people. It has been proved that they're truly saved and they love the Lord. He knows all these things about them. They have great love for Christ. Chapter 1, verse 8, we just remind ourselves of these things. Whom having not seen, ye love a sincere and deep love and loyalty to Christ. These are the people to whom he speaks. They have great joy too. That's in chapter 1, verse 8. But above all, chapter 1, verse 22 seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth. They were characterized by obeying Scripture. Scripture had a great moral demand upon them. What it said mattered to them. Its rules of conduct mattered to them. And they obeyed the Scripture. They obeyed the Gospel call by the work of the Spirit within them. And they obeyed in the ongoing spiritual life. And it's to these people that the Apostle Peter says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you, as strangers and pilgrims, you live in this world as though you were foreigners, those who are only passing through. Your destination is in another world, you are citizens of another world. You do not make deep roots in this present world. It is not your all in all. Your best ambitions are not in this present world. You've learned to live as pilgrims, passing through, different from the culture around you, living for the Lord. Is all that true? It was true of the Recipients of this letter, or many of them, to whom Peter especially speaks, I beseech you, I call you near for this counsel: as those who are living as strangers and pilgrims. Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Abstain from. Recoil from. Literally, from the original, draw away from. Start away from. Be put off by. Don't go near. The Apostle Paul puts it differently. Flee also. Flee fleshly lusts. Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul what are fleshly lusts what is meant by fleshly lusts well galatians 5 i'm sure you're familiar with the passage here it is the apostle paul verse 19 now the works of the flesh are manifest which are these? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revellings, and such like. That's one list of the fleshly lusts. Perhaps we can put it in another biblical manner. First of all, you consider the term in a literal way, fleshly lusts, lusts connected literally with the flesh, with the body, lusts of eating, lusts of drinking, anything to access to gratify bodily desires unclean or sexual matters, bodily sexual lusts. Here's one which may capture almost everybody for many, many years of their lives, divided up into moments and minutes and hours, here and there. One of the fleshly lusts, perhaps we don't think about it enough, love of ease some ease is necessary but more than enough it's a fleshly lust and just as it's a shock to learn how many years of our life we spend sleeping in bed it'll be a shock one day to discover how many years of our lives we've spent at ease when we didn't need to be at ease, the fleshly lusts from you might say the deeply shocking and serious to the insidious, gentle lusts of the flesh. And then to simplify, let's speak of the lusts which concern me, number one. The personal lusts, not now the fleshly lusts, the lusts that concern me. And we'll talk about them in a moment. Like how I come across, how I appear, what I enjoy, what I possess, the me, me, me lusts. They're fleshly lusts. Somebody may be thinking what is this all about this exaltation? Was not sin and the old sin nature disposed of at conversion? Was it not taken away? Well we were considering this some time ago and I tried to condense it in an article in the recent sword and trowel does the Christian have one nature or two natures well the reformers taught entirely that the believer was a person who now possessed two natures and that always was the reform position with very few exceptions for years and years and years a few exceptions suddenly But you know this is a post-war thing almost that a number of even reformed teachers have gone over to the side of the Christian having only one nature the sin nature having been eradicated or taken away at conversion. But even reformed teachers are now teaching that to quite an extent. But we stay with the old Reformation view. No, the Christian is a man a woman with two natures. There's the recessive nature, if you like, the old sin nature that used to dominate and control, but it's still there. You remember the marvelous illustration of Luther? A Christian is like a ship with two captains. The old captain, well, he was a pirate. It was shocking. And he's been overpowered. And he's now tied up a prisoner in the hold of the vessel. And there's a better captain now, a new captain, who's straightforward and clean and right. But every now and then, The old captain, because security is poor, breaks free. And he begins to rampage around below deck and give orders, sometimes small ones. And he gets obeyed and he gets the following. So there's a conflict on the vessel. And the old nature is asserting itself once again. It need not have dominion. It need not have dominion. It can be overcome by the grace of God and by prayer and effort. And it can be contained, but it's still there. Residual sin as a great work of that great Puritan John Owen on this very subject. How do we account for residual sin? The influence of the old nature is still there. Now some people you see are protesting and they're saying uh, very loudly, oh but that's not the teaching of the Apostle Paul, they say. In Romans 6, well we can look at it for just a few moments but I want to press on, I'll deal only with this point. But uh, in Romans 6, he addresses it. And here in verses 6 to 7, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, with Christ, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. There it is, they say. The old nature has been destroyed on Calvary, for he that is dead is freed from sin, and so on. And then verse 11 likewise reckon you yourselves also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do these verses really mean that the old nature is dead and gone and finished? Well, the very chapter should warn us because the apostle Paul goes on to say verse 12 let Not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. It's still there. Let it not reign. Its reign has been ended but not its presence, not its influence. Its dominion has been ended Verse 14, for sin shall not have dominion over you. It need no longer win because you have a new nature and you have the help of God and you can overcome the urges of the old nature. But it's still there. Residual sin is still within you. This is most important theologically, to understand this. The old nature is still there. When we are concerned about fighting sin, we're concerned about temptations that come from around us, from outside us, suggestions to sin, and we're also concerned about temptations that arise from within, from the old nature, which are sinful, Residual sin is the Puritan term for it. It's important to understand that. Now, if you don't understand that, new distortions of truth appear. So you'll hear people saying, temptation is not sin, only the committing of the sin. Really? If the temptation comes from within, it comes from the old sinful nature. It has the character of sin. It is something to be horrified at and suppressed by prayer and efforts, by the grace of God. You see, the new way of looking at it makes this kind of mistake. Say, for instance, in this matter of same-sex attraction. There are people going about saying, I am a Christian and I have same-sex attraction. You see, the temptation isn't sinful. And they've made the thought of same-sex attraction something permissible by saying, the temptation is not in itself sinful. It's only if I carried it out would I be sin- sinning? Well, that's the most serious heresy and very wrong. But to do away with the two natures in the Christian can get you into that type of fatal reasoning. Let's look again at Romans 6.6. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed. Now, how is the Apostle speaking there? Question, is he speaking literally? If he was speaking literally, well, yes, the old nature would be destroyed. But he can't be speaking literally because I was not there on Calvary's cross. When he says, my old nature was there, he clearly refers to, my guilt was there. My body of guilt was there. Not me, literally. So you shouldn't be taking the verse literally. No, as the Reformers said, the Apostle Paul here speaks not literally, but legally. It is not a literal statement, it is a legal statement. My guilt was there, not me, body and soul, literally. Knowing this, that our old man, in terms of our guilt burden and the dominion of sin, is crucified with him. But my old nature and me, I am not literally crucified. Do you see the distinction? It's the body of sin, the guilt that is destroyed. The old nature is still there. It can still assert itself. That's why you and I fail. That's why you and I are troubled. That's why you and I sometimes are divided people within ourselves. The Apostle Paul puts it another way in Galatians. He speaks of the flesh and the spirit being in a fight with each other. He speaks also of the old man and the new man. And he tells Christians to put away the old man and to suppress and to deal with it and its works and its fruits. The language of the Bible is the language of two natures in the subject of sanctification. So I come back to First Peter, because I digressed for too long on that, and verse eleven. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Well, I'd come to the point of describing the fleshly lusts as lusts and desires and temptations that are either literally to do with the flesh or they're about me. Pride, covetousness, self-esteem, temper. In what way is that a lust? Well, it's usually an expression of pride, and we could work that out in different ways. But I want to home on this matter of selfishness, self-love, selfishness. I was asked once, where is selfishness in the Ten Commandments? Is there a commandment about selfishness? Do you know what the answer is? This is not my answer. This is a classic answer. This goes right back again to the Reformers. Selfishness is behind all the commandments. And it is. It's behind the first four commandments about having no other God before God, no idol of any kind. Selfishness is the the me idol. I come even before God. Have you skipped worship? Why did you skip worship? I'm not talking about illness or a child in the family very sick or some absolute necessity that you wish hadn't been the case for you but was skipped worship by choice behind that will be self-love something for you came first whether it was love of ease or whatever something for you came first selfishness is behind every commandment and then the commandments against one that sins against one another fellow men Almost all of them, selfishness would be the main motive and ingredient. It's a massive, massive thing. There isn't a single one of us in this congregation who isn't attacked by temptations to selfishness. We could hone only on this. Where is selfishness addressed? In the New Testament, in a great many places, friends. Let me start off with Matthew twenty. I'm just conducting a Bible study here this morning for the good of our souls. Matthew chapter twenty, verse twenty-six. Whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister, your servant, says Christ to greatness is a serving spirit. And whosoever will be chief among you, if you want to be rated by God, as a true, loyal believer, let him be your servant. Even as our great example, the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. And he ministered to others throughout his brief earthly life and his three years of public ministry, every moment of them was in ministering to others. Wonderful, wonderful unselfishness of the Lord. He is the one we seek to emulate and to follow. So we start Right there. And I could go to the Gospel of Mark. In chapter 8. And here you have it in a slightly different direction. Mark 8 verse 34. And when he had called the people unto him. With his disciples also. He said unto them. Whosoever will come after me. Let him deny himself. That's the antidote to selfishness. And self-love. Let him deny himself. Practice self-denial, friends. It's so strengthening. It's so good for us all. What did you deny yourself this week in favor of somebody else's happiness or well-being? What did you leave off and forego for someone else's sake? within the family, in the place of employment, the place of study. Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself. Sometimes it's so important and good to deny yourself some luxury because it isn't absolutely vital to you because it strengthens you to deny yourself to practice self-denial and take up his cross, his burden, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life, studies his life, shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the Gospels, the same, shall save it. And then I go to Mark 12 and... uh, Verse thirty. And here are the words. <clears throat> and thou shalt love the Lord thy God, who is the Saviour's great summary of the law. The the Ten Commandments, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. That leaves absolutely no heart and soul and mind and strength for loving oneself. This is the first commandment, and the second is like, namely this, Thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. These are the great antidotes to selfishness given to us in the Scripture. Says the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, Let no man seek his own, his own satisfaction. His own pleasure, his own will. And we ask ourselves constantly, am I seeking my own will, my own way? Then I could look on to Philippians and chapter two, verses two to four. Fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like minded having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. That's a tremendous word. That's for yourself. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves and the needs of the other and the spiritual good and happiness of the other if only we could be more and more and more like that dear friends same chapter verse 20 for I have no man like minded like Timothy says the apostle who will naturally care for your state look at this explosive statement for all seek their own this was the Lord's servants currently available to the Apostle, near to hand, all seek their own. What a tragedy, if we resemble that. And I could turn very briefly to Second Timothy, and chapter 3, verses 1 to 2. This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come. This will be the culture all around us in these last days. For men shall be lovers of their own selves. Is the culture around seeping off, seeping into us? Lovers of ourselves. And I go back to our home passage But in 1 Peter, chapter 3, and verse 8, we read, Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren, be pitiful. And look at this word, be courteous. Well, we'll in due course, in future study, be looking at that word. The Greek word translated, courteous, is a tremendous word but that is laden with unselfishness. I go back to chapter 2 and verse 11. Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Are we taking the spiritual warfare seriously? The devil will orchestrate temptations from, from without and he will stir Temptations from within also. And they're designed to maim, to kill us spiritually, to capture us, to subdue us, to disable us, to pollute the soul. Which war against the soul. The Greek word translated war could be translated very literally which encamp against the soul. That's more the derivation of the word than the word, but it's there. These lusts are like an army encamped against you. At any time, there could be a thousand demons watching, waiting, ready to launch upon you temptation. A fleshly lust A selfish desire or thought, whatever. And here we are going lightly through life with nothing to worry about. They war, they camp against us constantly, warring against the soul or the life of the soul to erode away your love for Christ to erode away your concern for the progress of the gospel, to erode away your love of the truth and the reading of the word and prayer, to erode away your testimony. You're constantly under attack. There's nothing the devil would like more than to bring down a whole group of us from the top of the church throughout the gathering and to sow in our midst a dozen or two dozen achans in the camp all with the God of selfishness or something that's what he will be actively striving to do dearly beloved it is important I beseech you I call you near for special counsel as strangers and pilgrims exiles who don't belong here recoil from, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul and will certainly bring you down. Small things first. Oh yes, Pastor. I have some small temptations that I have given way to. How foolish we are In a way, there's no such thing as a small temptation. That small selfish desire, that small fleshly, literal fleshly lust, whatever it is, is only the tip of an arrow that's been plunged into you. There's a whole shaft behind it and it's drawing behind it a line with all kinds of things attached to it. Bigger and bigger temptations. It's the weakening tip of the arrow that you're entertaining. You're, but now we know all about microbes. It's an invisible, except to the microscope, infection. But it's deadly, and it'll grow, and it'll lead to bigger things. Even the small, fleshly, selfish desires. Repudiate them. Hate them. Pray against them. Hold yourself up. Resist them. And God will enable you. And there's a positive side to this. We have to close. It's in the 12th verse. Having your conversation, your toing and fro your behavior honest among the Gentiles, for Gentiles read unsaved, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they think you're peculiar and unwanted with the dangerous ideas, they may buy your good works, buy your good works, buy your good works because you've resisted the fleshly temptations with the help of God by his grace which they shall behold they will notice your virtues glorify God in the day of visitation we'll come to that the day of visitation could be the day of judgment Maybe they'll have been saved by your testimony and your life and they'll glorify God in the day of judgment or it may be that the day of visitation means the day when God visits them with salvation and they'll glorify God because your life was part of the witness that brought them to Christ. So We will resist the fleshly lusts, A to preserve our souls, I should have said A to please the Lord, B to preserve our souls, C to win the lost.